I grow fruit. I use pesticides. I'm not anti-pesticide. But what I learned, Roger, is that modern agriculture, and particularly corn production, uses potent insecticides every single time a crop is planted, whether it's needed or not. Now, to me, that is crazy talk. So we have consumers wanting low pesticide food. We need to support our insect and soil resources. And we have low pesticide methods that support soil life. And using those methods many times results in higher profit for farmers. They're giving people what they want to eat. They're preserving their resources and they're spending less on inputs. To me, that's a win-win and people out there are already doing this and I am so happy and it gives me so much hope. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, my guest today sees the urgent need to support and preserve healthy, biodiverse soil and agricultural land now and in the decades to come for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren. And she's the author of a book that I've read and recommend called Restoring Eden, Unearthing the Agribusiness Secret that Poisoned My Farm Community. What a heavy topic. I want to welcome, though, Dr. Elizabeth Hilborn. Elizabeth, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I tell you what, it's a pleasure for me to have an opportunity to speak to authors that feel passionately about issues. And especially like in this case, I had a chance to read your book before we talked, and I've been looking forward to visiting with you. And I'm I'm also going to say that people should read your book as well, Restoring Eden. And uh, we've got a lot to cover. And you need to stop me, Elizabeth, if I start giving away too many of the secrets of, that I've found in your book. Because I know the the trick is that I I want to share the information that you have, the story that you have, but not discourage anybody from going and getting the story themselves, <laughs> going to the bookstore or downloading it or something. So, so stop me if I'm giving away the plot or anything like that. Well, I'll have to say that uh, I'm a debut author, so I'm new to this, and I'm an accidental writer. I'm a veterinarian, and seeing the animals die around me in my community was so highly motivating. I had to write this book. Like, I had no option. I had to write this book. And so I'm not super skilled at the game of talking about the book without giving it away. So it, it it may just be a hopeless case and and we'll muddle on and and get through this because um I want the story to get out. That's the most important thing to me. Well I tell you what, you're with the right guy if you want to muddle on because muddling is what I do really, <laughs> really well. And so we're gonna we're gonna muddle along. And you you mentioned you're a veterinarian. 
and you love animals, which makes sense. It makes sense that people would want to become veterinarians to love animals. But I have to confess to you, I have have a kind of restricted view of what are animals. You know, growing up on a farm, loving animals myself, somehow I never included insects um, or fish or birds for that matter. And I don't think I'm a, a, alone that way. I think maybe an awful lot of people that grow up on farms don't stop to think about all these living things that surround us as being animals in the same sense as they do their their hogs and their pigs and their dog and their cats and so forth. Um, am I unique or am, am, is is it true that other people actually do kind of have a hard time taking in this whole world that's around us that includes all the insects and fish and so forth? Yeah, I think you're not unique at all. I've I've heard that comment before. Like people have exclaimed to me, insects are animals? What? <laughs> I yeah. never thought of them that way. But if as a scientist and a veterinarian, I see insects and the rest of the world as animals. Um, so we have, you know, the, the plant kingdom, animal fungus, and then we have all the diverse microbes. And I recognize animals as a cohesive whole because we share so many characteristics. We share how we respond to the natural world. We respond to heat and cold, environmental stressors. We sometimes respond similarly to toxic insults. And I think that's a very important theme of my book is we, we can't assume that by using insecticides and killing insects that, that we're immune from that. By, by killing other animals, we're also putting ourselves at risk in multiple ways. You you know, as you speak, it, it makes me think that we're just part of a community. You know, in some respects, we often talk about an environment and, and systems and so forth, but we're just a big community and our community is beyond our, our neighbors. But our neighbors, especially in old days, uh, included a whole lot more insects and birds. And, and I think you make the point that uh we're losing so many species and and it's something that's uh, tragic uh that there needs to be an alarm sounded and you know people should be concerned and actually try to take steps to keep this from happening or if it, at all possible reverse it then you start talking about being more regenerative as as well too yeah absolutely we're in the middle of the sixth great extinction. And I, I have to say that human actions have really pushed this forward, certainly faster and stronger than it, it may have otherwise naturally happened. So even if we're not 100% responsible, we're responsible. We do live in a community of life and we depend greatly on these other kingdoms of life. I talked about the plants they are the photosynthesizers that can um, that transform the energy of the sun into carbohydrates. They make our oxygen atmosphere. The plants are everything. 
They are the basis of life, terrestrial life on Earth. And then the fungi. Over the last 20 years, we've learned so much about the fungi that inhabit the soil and support us in so many ways, support the health of plants, but also of us. We're learning the medicinal properties of fungi and how important they are. I'm a bee veterinarian, so fungi are very important to pollinating insects and to bees for their health and well-being. And we're just beginning to understand that. Paint a picture of where you are. So we're going to go to this point where you've had this realization that things were happening and that you had to write a book about it. So put us there, if you would. Put us at your at your farm. What's it like? What's it look like? What's the land look like? What's the vegetation look like? And what had it look like with the animal life that had been around you before what we're going to talk about? Sure. Thank you. So I live in central North Carolina. It's the Piedmont of the eastern seaboard. So we have an old soil, red clay that drains very well. We have some white clay too in places, but if you're buying a farm, you want to avoid the white clay because it doesn't drain as well. But the red clay soil is very nice, especially if you can add some organic matter to it. It's gentle rolling hills. It's a historically a very rural state, a lot of tobacco grown and other crops, um, some row crops here, but really our most fertile soil is in the coastal plain and it's a sandy loam. And, and I'd say our, our most intensive agricultural production is in our coastal plain. To our west, we have the Appalachian Mountains, the highest mountains on the East Coast. And me personally, um, I'd kind of grown up a suburban kid, and but I'd always loved farming and food. Since a young age, uh, my mother introduced me to growing food in our suburban backyard and it was it just lit me up and I've been growing food since I was a teenager. So my husband and I found this farm. We moved um, when our daughter was about in middle school and we started making it our home place. I put in a big garden and orchard. I love growing fruit. That's my main hobby. So I've I've grown fruit for decades and I've always been dependent upon pollinators but I never really saw them Roger like fruit just happened the blooms came in the spring I watched the fruit grow and bulge and then harvest came and I was enmeshed in this cycle of life but I never gave credit to all the supporting players I took it totally for granted. We would take our food scraps out and compost them, and our dogs would use the front yard and lay their waste, and the food scraps turned into compost. If we didn't pick up the dog waste, it would disappear within days to weeks, depending on the temperature. My fruit grew, and that was normal. That's just what happened. It was like the sun rising in the east. So 
I'm grateful for this experience in the sense that when all of that stopped happening, when normal went away, it made me really look and see because I realized that what happens to the natural world affects us deeply. We can't assume we're separate. We are the community that you talked about. We support each other. I planted the fruit trees. It attracted populations of pollinators that now live among us. So they'd been there for us until they couldn't live here anymore. You know, a little bit more description, though, too. Do you Are you on a hillside or a top of a hill or some valleys below you? Uh, what surrounds you where you live? Yeah, so I live in an area of mixed natural forests, some farmed woodlots, a lot of pasture land, some of which is used for crops, some kitchen gardens, some for livestock. We have a mixture of country and town people here, so people use their land in different ways. I'm in a high place here. Our, our house is built in a high place, and we live near a floodplain. And it's a floodplain of a medium-sized river, and it, it floods every year, sometimes twice a year. It's a regular occurrence. So um, people don't build in the floodplain. We know it floods. I've used it as pasture for animals. And when I built it, because of the floods, I was so afraid of the animals getting trapped because floods can come up really quickly. So I built a dog leg up the hill so that they always would have a fenced-in area that they could escape to if, say, I wasn't home and the river rose. It's, it's really interesting. As you start painting that picture, I can imagine what it's like. And then also just Climate-wise, um, do you ever get snow, or is it? Are you kind of immune of getting snow there? Oh, we get snow. Um, in 2020, we got two feet, and it pretty much paralyzed the place because we don't get snow often enough to have a huge fleet of snow um, plows the way they do, say, in the Northeast, where snow is a given every winter. So the major roads were cleared pretty quickly, but they couldn't run the school buses for a couple weeks. School was out. So the kids got a lot of sledding in. Are some of the people that neighbor you are trying to make a living of farming or are they, you know, planting crops and so forth rather than, you know, just horses and some cows grazing and so forth that they have crops around you? Yes, we have neighbors who make a living from farming, and they're not common here. Like I said, most of our full-time crop farmers live in the coastal plain, um, there, but there are people here, and there are, so if we're talking crop farming, that's that's kind of what I mean. What we do have here that I find I'm so grateful for are the young people that have moved to the area because they want to be farmers and they grow specialty crops, fruits and vegetables. They have 
community-supported agriculture programs. They have regular attendance at farmers' market. Um, it's it's really a lovely place to live. But these are smaller operations. So if I think of people with access to hundreds of acres or a hundred acres is a good sized farm here. Um, they're not as common as the coastal plain. But because of all these fruit and vegetable growers, again, it makes me realize the essential nature of pollinators because so many of us depend on the pollinating insects. And I'm a honeybee veterinarian, but it's not just bees. It's flies and beetles, and the wild bees are so diverse and numerous. Roger, when I was first learning to be a honeybee veterinarian in 2017, I was so enthused about learning about these insects that I had mentioned were pretty much invisible to me before. They just always got the job done. I noticed them, but I didn't appreciate them the way I should. So that spring in 2017 in April, I was out in the garden taking photographs of these tiny little bees, just a few millimeters long, wasps pollinating my plants, just surrounded by this constant industry all the way up to the big carpenter bees, sometimes an inch and a half long, pollinating my fruit trees. Around here, many people think of Eastern carpenter bees as a nuisance. But in my experience, when our farm was contaminated and we lost all our pollinators, the carpenter bees were the last to fall and they were the first to return. So after a few years of not being able to grow any fruits or vegetables, I planted in a burst of optimism, I planted cucumbers. It was the carpenter bees that gave me some fruit. You know, before we're through here, we're going to have to circle back and ask about honeybee veterinarians because for, <laughs> uh, for all my years, I didn't know there was such a thing. I'm feel like I'm I'm going to learn something again. That's the reason I have these podcasts too, because I keep learning. And I didn't know that there was honeybee veterinarians. But what I'd like to skip towards right now is you've described the space. And as you get into it in, in your book, it almost feels like kind of suddenly there is this recognition that things are a lot different, that your normal life, if there was up to that time, and again, stop me, you know, I'm starting this story wrongly, but it was... You were surrounded by this community. There was all this activity. There were insects and, and birds and, and animals and, and a certain amount of noise and activity that goes with that. And then you had your own version of a silent spring. If Take one from Rachel Carson and instead of silent spring, it might have been the silent summer, that there was silence, that it wasn't there. Um, and again, it just struck me in your book. It was almost like kind of... The, like suddenly, if you just kind of like ease into it, it'd be one thing. But it was like, wait a minute, this isn't right. Something's wrong. Absolutely. I believe that reports like mine of contamination events are unusual. And one of those reasons, I believe, is because people don't necessarily notice 
So I went from being outdoors all the time, taking care of the orchard, the gardens, the livestock, and seeing that life to noticing, whoa, I am on my own here. When I was walking through the paths in the forest or in the uplands, nothing would move around me unless the wind happened to move some leaves. I felt so alone. It was the most eerie, uncomfortable feeling I have ever experienced. And I remember at one point, my I, I'm a talker, so <laughs> I talked to people at work about it. And my supervisor in late July was, how are things at the farm? And I told him, I feel like I'm seeing the future. And I realized that the future is here in many places. So I had years where I had no fruits and vegetables in my garden. But if I look around the world now, there are places in the world where people have to hand pollinate their fruits and vegetables if they want produce. In Sichuan province in China, lightweight people climb the pear trees during the few days of receptivity, pear and apple orchards, and have little vials of pollen, and they use brushes to hand pollinate. And let me tell you the story of why this happened and why I felt like I was seeing the future. So Sichuan province was a big fruit growing area. And the fruit was a very lucrative crop, but the plants were pollinated by the wild pollinators they had. They started more intensive farming and put in more and more trees. And by doing that, they destroyed the habitat. A lot of our native bees are ground nesting beads. They're mild mannered. They're not like the yellow jackets that'll get after you on a picnic. These are mild mannered keep to themselves, females just putting their eggs in the ground, giving them a pollen packet to eat and leaving. So they look kind of like big anthills, anthills with big holes in the ground. If you see those, leave those because those are valuable native pollinators. But so in China, they had this, it was a great system, but unknowingly, probably, they expanded their production and they destroyed their native pollinators. So they brought in honeybees. And about this time, China was becoming more and more modern and their pesticide use had increased. Well, the pesticides became um, such a frequent application that the honeybees couldn't even survive there anymore. So they're left without insect pollinators. And these are tireless animals. Our insect pollinators are out there working from sunup, the natives, to it warms up in the day, the honeybees come out, all the way to dusk, the natives get the end of the day again. Without that, we're on our own. And they're on their own now, climbing trees to pollinate. In 2021, uh, reports came out of Kenya that the farmers were having to hand pollinate. And in the US, if you search for hand pollinate cucumbers or hand pollinate squash, you'll get dozens and dozens of returns showing 
the method of how to hand pollinate your cucumber or squash plants because so many people in the U.S. now don't have pollinators. You reminded me, I've been to Sichuan province and I've been to some other provinces too in China that are having similar experiences that the change in their agricultural practices like Shandong province and in their particular case, they're having issues with pollution effects. Uh, it's more Shandong province is kind of the California of China. But we've got plenty of problems right here. And and really, it's happening around the world. But let's get back to your neighborhood again. Let's get back to this awakening when it was really coming home to you and seeing this is abruptly becoming an issue. It's a, a, not just a gradual slide into this. It was like you're very aware of the silence. And so tell us that journey. Yeah. So everything seemed normal in april when i was out taking the photographs and in late april we had a flood typical normal flood didn't think anything of it typically what happened in the past before 2017 when a flood occurred it would fill the ephemeral wetlands it would fill the agricultural swales that were built in the floodplain to help drain the crop fields our area um, had a broad floodplain where people used to grow corn uh, back in the day in the early 20th century. It was renowned for its very high corn yields. And that's because of the frequent flooding replenishes the nutrients and organic material in the soil. It's a beautiful sandy loam down there. And in, I'd planted some trees along the river trying to forestall erosion because we have a flashy river now. There's a lot of development in central North Carolina. So I'm just trying to stabilize the banks with a riparian buffer. After this flood, made a plan to go down early May, just check on my trees. There were saplings. I was afraid they were laid flat under the newly deposited sediment. And so I was working out there all day. And on my way back, I stopped by the swale because when the swale is full, it is a delight, Roger. There are tadpoles, there are dragonflies, there are diving beetles and birds all around. It's just, I just love sitting there and watching the wildlife. It's so beautiful. But that day in early May, I went to the water and it was still and golden brown covered with a gray scum. And I had just been out in March learning the names of the pollinators that had given me fruit for so many years. That day I saw dead insects on the scum and laying near the water. And I recognized some of them as the pollinators I'd learned the names of just a month earlier. So that was pretty shocking. I ran up the hill. I got my husband. It was getting near dark by that point. I said, you have to come look at this. I don't know what's going on. Was there an industrial spill in the river? Like what could do that? He came out the next day and we walked the water together and didn't see any normal life. And then I started sending out emails. I sent out an email to a local river keeper. I sent out emails to my environmental science colleagues, to 
water quality people. But that was a Sunday. I didn't expect to get any replies. But I did learn from the riverkeeper there was no big industrial spill. Hmm. So the first thing I did is I collected water samples, and I'm very grateful I did that. That really helped. But after that, I thought, oh, how weird. What happened to the, the swale? I'd better find out. But it wasn't like it was it was shocking to me because that's a center of life. The amphibians come and colonize the swale when it's full because it's a fish-free environment. So in healthy years, there are salamanders and all kinds of frogs and toads, but that was all gone. So that was shocking enough. But within weeks, the multitude of moths that we saw normally at our porch light when I'd turn it on in the evenings to go check on the animals before bed, there were no moths. There were no gnats around the porch light. I could have left it on all night and it was totally bare. And that, I think that's what just threw me sideways. I was like, whoa, like what could do this? I had no idea. And then I realized that my summer garden was failing. So the cucumbers were like these little rat tail twists. The seeds didn't form, poor okra yields, poor green bean yields, I know they're supposed to be self-pollinating, but I get a lot better yields from uh, green beans when I have pollinators. And that's true of tomatoes and peppers too, eggplant. So I I really noticed the difference. Well, and that's and, why I wrote the book. And in your book, that leads to, you know, contacting experts, trying to get tests, uh, conversations with your neighbors. And to skip on ahead without giving away all the, 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 the great writing that you have in, in the middle of your book, you do come to conclusions that won't perhaps surprise people that uh, pesticides have uh, have a role to play here, but in some surprising ways. And I'm not sure how much of that you might touch on, but you, you're running into things of finding that, wait a minute, you know, this, you were uncovering this mystery. Uh, and... And that was, uh, again, a problem that involved pesticides. So I'm, I'm not sure if you want to add on that, because I'm also thinking, too, of of moving ahead, of giving that this is happening in other areas as well. People can take a lesson from what you've learned and that uh, maybe a lesson for all of us. So let me let me circle back with that question then, Elizabeth. So when you were you were starting to identify what seemed to cause it, I mean, what do you do? How do you do you start writing your book right away, or do you start trying to convince your neighbors to use different practices? Do you try to go to the legislators and get them to uh, maybe support some new laws or or regulations? What do you do when you start identifying what has caused this and you don't want it to happen anymore? Yeah, so basically, I wrote about it. I I had, I'm very, this is a close community. We'd lived here for decades. I knew my neighbors very well, and they helped me in the investigation. My neighbor leases out his land to a local row crop farmer, and that's new. That just started in 2013, I believe, or 14. I believe it's 13. Um, 
And so before 2013, that's the baseline I was used to is no row crop farming in my area. This happened in 2017. And when I reached out to experts, people assured me there was no connection to the cornfield. And I know the local farmer. I'd known him for decades. So he was one of my first phone calls when I found the dead water. It's like, what could do this? What, what I heard you out in the fields before this happened. What were you doing? And he said, well, just normal stuff. I burnt the field down with Roundup before I planted um applied nitrogen. I said, well, well, were there any other pesticides? And he said, no. I was like, huh, Roundup doesn't do this. How can, like, it didn't make any sense. And that's kind of the way my early investigation looked. Everywhere I turned, nothing added up. Nothing made sense. What would kill both insects and amphibians? How could that happen? Like, it was so dramatic. And then within weeks of seeing our moths disappeared, the bird disappear, the birds left. So birds abandoned their nestlings. We had Phoebes filling the ra rafters of our tractor barn, and they just left. They left their babies. I had never seen that before, but I realized, you know, they probably don't have anything to eat anymore. The bats left. No more chimney swifts flying in the air. No more dragonflies hunting. It was barren here. So um, I, I grow fruit. I use pesticides. I'm not anti-pesticide. But what I learned, Roger, is that modern agriculture, and particularly corn production, uses potent insecticides every single time a crop is planted, whether it's needed or not. Now, to me, that is crazy talk because these pesticides are so potent that researchers have estimated that their use has increased the toxicity of our soil by 48 times for oral exposure for insects it's 48 times more toxic than it was back in the early 90s. These um, new pesticides that are applied every time are, are associated with our loss of insects and our loss of birds. They affect amphibians and mammals as well, fish. And the reason the farmer didn't tell me about them, is that they coat the corn seed. He didn't really, I think, I don't know, he didn't tell me about them, and I think he would have, so I don't know if he knew he was applying them. But because the seed coating is used every time 99% of corn crops in the United States, it's out there, and these are very persistent, water-soluble, insecticides. And I have two opinions. Number one, they are so potent, we're seeing damage from them, widespread damage, and it's serious business. I lost my ability to grow fruits and vegetables for years here. 
Number two, I'm a biologist. You don't throw a potent biocide at animals year after year after year and expect them to retain their efficacy. Potent tools like that should be a very last resort. They should be used when normal farming practices are failing or you're having a problem with a crop. They shouldn't be used preemptively. They show no yield benefit with soybeans. That's been shown, and many suggest no yield benefit with corn. So in my opinion, we're poisoning the natural world for no clear reason using these potent insecticides. It gets me fairly quickly to the what do you do about it stage. And I understand you know, what you've been able to do around your farm, and you, you've identified the issue. Uh, you have sympathetic farmers in the area. You can, and hopefully there can be some modification in their approaches. Hopefully it's not before it's too late that they've already, you know, killed off this important community. But this is happening all over the world. So, Elizabeth, I find myself very, very sympathetic to what you're saying. Very, very concerned. I think a lot of people will be. But how you take it to the next stage to have that stop happening. You know, what's going to first at least reduce this happening uh, and maybe, re again, reversing it is, is a goal, too, if it's at all possible to be totally regenerative in that, in that respect. But what gives you hope for how we can pull back from the brink and, and how we can keep this from just being an inevitable slide into this uh, extinction? that you mentioned earlier in our conversation? Well, as a bee veterinarian, I fully recognize that these insecticides are not the only reason our pollinators are under threat. We have these wild weather events, these crazy heat waves. We have pests and disease that are affecting insects. And I know as a veterinarian that if you have this existing baseline of stress for a patient, starving or malnourished, unhoused, infected, you don't then throw a toxic poison on that animal and expect it to get better. So the low-hanging fruit to me in this multitude of issues is our choice to use these chemicals. We can choose to pull back. The European Union has actually banned some of these insecticides from their row crop use because they saw the effect on the bees. So there's no law saying we have to use these. And the good news, the part that gives me so much hope is that I came to this because, like, I was clueless that this even existed. I came to this because I found out because my farm was contaminated. But there are so many other people know about all of this. And there are regenerative farming techniques, agroecology, organic farmers, and they are farming in such a way that they support the soil, number one, they preserve the resource. 
that's a real take-home message I learned from all this, is that if we do anything, we have to focus on preserving the resources we have, and that is living soil, healthy insect communities. We know that beneficial insects will control pest insects, but by using insecticides every time, we kill off our helper beneficial insects too. Um, there was a great article written by Douglas, who works at Penn State University. They did experiments in the lab, but then they went out and did field experiments with soybean and coated seed. And they showed that their plots with uncoated seed had higher yield, significantly higher than the plots with coated seed. But the reason was so surprising to me. And it was because that slugs are not insects, they're mollusks, and they are not killed by the insecticides. But they would eat the plants, they would become intoxicated, and their beetle predators would eat the slugs and die. So the beetles, the predators were being killed off and the slugs had their way with the soybean crop and the yields were reduced because the insecticides had taken out the good guys, our helpers. We really need them moving forward. They are a resource to us. So preserving soil, preserving our beneficial insects, the pollinators, the insect predators, and it's a win-win for farmers. So I updated my knowledge about what farmers are enduring right now. And our farm debt is at record highs, higher than the 1980s. Real estate debt is the largest portion of that, but debt is debt there. Profits are down because input costs have gone through the roof. AgWeb this January reported that inputs for corn are adding up to over $1,000 per acre. So we have consumers wanting low pesticide food. We need to support our insect and soil resources. And we have low pesticide methods that support soil life. And using those methods many times results in higher profit for farmers. They're giving people what they want to eat. They're preserving their resources and they're spending less on inputs. So to me, that's a win-win and people out there are already doing this and I am so happy and it gives me so much hope. As we speak and as you describe this, there's listeners that are thinking, oh, well, that's well and good, but you're talking about just a small farmer's market, you know, a couple acre farms and so forth. But that's not true. There's large scale farmers that I know that are really working on getting a healthier microbiome that have been able to reduce their water use, their nitrogen use, are being are importing uh, beneficial insects uh, to populate some of the, the work. So there really is progress happening uh, across the country at all levels and coming from lots of institutions. It's not something that 
is restricted that can only be done at, at a very small scale for local CSAs and farmers markets. They're, they're commercial farmers that are committed to try to find better ways. Uh, we just need more of it at all levels. And you're helping encourage in that, Elizabeth. And, and I, I really welcome the message that you're drawing attention to this issue. And I appreciated it uh, as I was reading your story. And I was thinking back on the farm I came from. And I've noticed a long time ago, I was noticing the fact that you don't see earthworms like we used to. And that's a story that's often told. Uh, but then you got me thinking about all the different insects and the bees and so forth that don't seem to be as much in that area as they were before. But the wet areas, uh, I hadn't really thought about that until I was reading it in your book, because I remember growing up and we could see, um, you know, crawdads in the, in the ditches, in the, in the waterways and so forth. And, and so many other living things that aren't there any longer. You know, I think that it's one of the really things that you should be, proud of in your book is you cause a reader to stop and think. And, uh, and I assume that was part of your purpose uh, is to wake people up and have them be aware of the community and then hopefully get as impassioned as you become to try to do something about it. Oh, thank you, Roger. In the book, I talk about reaching out to neighbors and saying, I found the, the wetland in the floodplain, it's dead. And some of my neighbors said, oh, that's okay. We don't go down there. And so I kind of consider myself like I'm the crazy lady in the tall boots and the insect repellent that goes and walks through unmown <laughs> fields and goes and looks at tadpoles and notices. And so when this happened, I really felt like I had to tell my story. Well, you've told your story very well, except there's one, two pieces left here. One of them, I want to go back to the fact that you are a veterinarian and you said a honeybee veterinarian. Boy, tell me your uh, elevator speech on being a honeybee veterinarian, because I didn't even know that was an option. Yeah. So Australia and the EU has honeybee veterinarians. The United States did not. And the reason we do now started in 2017 when the Food and Drug Administration changed their rules for livestock drugs. They restricted use of antimicrobials, antibiotics that are used also in human medicine. So bees are treated with antibiotics when they have brood diseases, they're young sometimes get bacterial diseases. And one of those, European fowl brood, is treatable with antibiotics. So the FDA made this new veterinary feed directive rule in an attempt to make sure people aren't overusing or abusing these antibiotics that can lead to antimicrobial resistance and the serious infections we're seeing among people and animals. And I saw it as an opening. I was like, I love bees. I love fruit. This is a way for me to start my own clinical practice and give back to beekeepers and the industry 
And ironically, I started the practice three months before our land was contaminated. So April was really my highlight of seeing all these, the glory of the biodiversity of pollinators before it all went away. <laughs> so the timing was not good, but um, I'm proud to be a honeybee veterinarian. Well, I'm proud to have a honeybee veterinarian on Farm to Table Talk. Now, let me just ask you a final question, and and that is, as you're into this now, you're a honeybee veterinarian, you've written this book, you've experienced this, you've gathered a lot more knowledge about what the issue is. What reasons do you have to be optimistic about the next five or six years? As I mentioned, Roger, I'm not the only one who knows about this stuff. I probably came to it late. Um, many farmers know about these insecticides. Uh, many young farmers in our area who grow regeneratively or organically also know about it. I routinely talk to consumers Mothers with young children want to make sure they are feeding their babies with the lowest amount of insecticides. Insecticides are neurotoxins. When my child was young, we were dealing with ALAR as an insecticide used in apples that was taken off the market. But that really got my attention, feeding an infant her first solid food and wanting the organic applesauce. So there's a lot on the demand side. There's growing awareness. And people love butterflies. Many like bees. I am so hopeful. I really think that there's a push to preserve our natural world and to produce food in the least destructive way possible. Well, and you're helping. Dr. Elizabeth Hilborn. She's the author of Restoring Eden. You help by that. You've written that book. You're helping by being with us on Farm to Table Talk. And I thank you for the conversation and thank you for what you're doing. Uh, and you're also the first honeybee veterinarian I've had as a guest on Farm to Table Talk. So that's good for something too. So thanks again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 